Over the last two decades, really, we've seen a shift in criminal justice policy debates, as well as in the orientation of criminal justice policy itself, which now reflects a level of leniency and skepticism um, that's you know, evidenced by, among other things, over the last decade, an increase in the scope of the police recruitment and retention crisis, a 25% decline in the prison population, a 25% decline in the number of arrests made by police, a 15% decline in the jail population, and an explosion in the political success of the progressive prosecutor movement, which went from something that no one really had ever heard of uh, 10 years ago to a point uh, at which somewhere between 40 and 50 million Americans are living in jurisdictions with progressive prosecutors. Now, these shifts are the byproducts of a policy agenda that is explicitly aimed at pursuing depolicing and decarceration for its own sake. And that agenda is characterized by policies like sentencing reforms, bail reforms, discovery reforms, police reforms, things that I think can fairly be characterized as policies that raise the transaction costs of enforcing the law and lower the transaction costs of breaking the law. And so the basic idea here is that these these things are, are, are what justice requires. This is what reformers say, that we need decarceration, we need depolicing to serve a proper understanding of justice. But I disagree, and my research has convinced me that this policy agenda is actually quite dangerous, hence the title of my book, Criminal Injustice. Now, before I get into the sort of meat and potatoes of my talk, I, I wanted to say a few words about who actually bears the brunt of the downside risk associated with the decarceration and depolicing project and the agenda. It is not most of us in this room, I would suspect. One of the things that I think is just terribly unappreciated in the United States is the degree to which crime is hyper, hyper concentrated, both geographically and demographically. So every year in the United States, somewhere around 2% of U.S. counties are going to see somewhere around 50% of U.S. murders, and more than half of U.S. counties won't see a single murder in a given year. And within those counties, things like murder and violent crime are even more concentrated still. So there's something in the criminological literature called the law of crime concentration. It was uh, uh, developed by a criminologist named David Weisberg, who's currently at George Mason University, really brilliant scholar. And what he has found in studies that have been replicated across this country and even across nations is that in a given city, somewhere around 5% of street segments will account for about 50% of all crime. A street segment, if, for those of you who don't know, if you picture a four-sided city block, would be corner to corner both sidewalks. So in my home city of New York, we have somewhere around 81,000 to 82,000 street segments. Now, if you look at 2010, 2015, and 2020, in each of those years, about 3.5% of street segments accounted for 50% of all the violence. Almost 40% of street segments didn't see any crime whatsoever, and 1% of the street segments saw 25% of all the violence in that city. Now, that gives you a picture of the geographic concentration of crime, but it's also demographically concentrated. And so the risk that you face often depends on the type of community that you live in and the background of the people living in that community. So again, looking at my home city of New York, for every year for which we have data, which goes back to 2008 now, a minimum, a minimum of 95% of all shooting victims were either black or Hispanic, almost all of them male. Now I can assure you that black and Hispanic males do not constitute anywhere near 
95% of New York City's population. It is, one of the, it is one of the starkest and most persistent racial disparities that you will see in the criminal justice data sphere. Now, nationally, black men in this country are 10 times more likely to be the victim of a homicide than their white counterparts. And if you look at firearm homicides specifically, and you were to chart it out between 1990 and 2021, what you would see is that the white male homicide rate would be right at the bottom of the x-axis, and it would remain essentially flat over that entire period. For the Hispanic homicide rate for males, it would start at about the middle at around 20 per 100,000 and decline pretty steeply into the single digits where it's basically remained. For black men in the early 1990s, it was nearly 60 per 100,000. And what that graph would look like is a giant U-shape as you went across time because of the crime decline that occurred in the 1990s and early aughts. But the really tragic thing is that in 2021, the firearm homicide victimization rate for black men in this country reached its early 1990s peak, which means that for that community specifically, we have essentially erased all of the progress that was made over the course of the 1990s and 2000s. Now, it's really important to understand this issue of crime concentration for a couple of reasons. One is that it contextualizes the disparities that I'm gonna talk more about later. Um, because if in fact police resources and criminal justice resources are deployed disproportionately to the areas that have the most acute crime problems and certain demographic groups are overrepresented in those places, well then of course you will have disparities in enforcement outcomes that cannot be viewed in a vacuum. But that is not evidence of discrimination even though it is often presented that way. But the other reason it's important to take account of the crime concentration issue is that it challenges the claim that reformers represent the interests of low-income minority communities. And I'm not sure that's entirely right. And to kind of illustrate this phenomenon, I want to tell you a story that should give you an idea of, of what this looks like. And the story is about a young woman named Brittany Hill, who in 2019 was standing outside of her home on the west side of Chicago in a neighborhood called Austin while holding her one-year-old daughter in her arms. And she was talking with a couple of gentlemen one of whom was the daughter's father. And you can watch this happen because there was a, uh, a Chicago Police Department security camera posted up in that neighborhood because it is consistently one of the most dangerous neighborhoods, not just in that city, but in this country. And what the video shows is a nondescript sedan kind of roll up to the group. You see the little girl actually wave to the car, perhaps thinking that you know, the occupants are friends or family. And within a couple of seconds, the occupants of that car roll down the windows and open fire on the group in broad daylight. Brittany Hill turns to shield her daughter. She is immediately wounded, mortally. She gets about four or five running steps before she collapses onto the hot pavement with her daughter still clinging to her neck as everyone else scatters. The shooters get out of the car, start firing at whoever's running away, and in a last-ditch effort to save her daughter's life, she throws her body over her daughter where she begins to bleed out. You can see that her limp body is then dragged away after the shooters take off. And she's taken to a hospital in front of her daughter who actually stands up and use her not, uses her not quite yet mastered ability to walk to try and go after her mom. Now, because that shooting was caught on video, the Chicago police were able to make an arrest within a few hours. They arrested two individuals, one of whom was a guy named Michael Washington who had nine prior felony convictions, including one for second-degree murder. 
God knows how many prior arrests. The other gentleman was a, a, a guy in his early 20s named Eric Adams who had also multiple prior arrests, including uh, being on probation for an illegal gun charge. Now, whenever I tell that story, one of the first questions that I get asked is, you know, what on earth was someone with nine prior felony convictions doing on the street? And the idea is that this is a rare outcome. Right? And, and it would be easy if you were predisposed to sort of um, support the criminal justice reform movement to say, well, you know, that's a terrible story and I feel for that woman and her family, but that's an anecdote, right? It's a marginal story. It doesn't actually represent reality. Unfortunately, the data show that that's more than just an anecdote. In fact, that is actually representative of the crime picture in a lot of the most dangerous communities across this country. In the city of Chicago, the typical homicide suspect has 12 prior arrests. Almost one in five have more than 20 prior arrests. In the city of Baltimore, you're looking at somewhere around nine to 10 prior arrests. And just a few weeks ago, the DC police chief, Robert Conti, told reporters that in his city, the typical homicide suspect has 11 prior arrests. And what that tells us is that the most serious crime problem that we have is one that is driven by people who have been given multiple bites at the apple despite showing through their repeated criminal conduct that they have no intention of playing by society's rules. And yet, the agenda that we have seen characterize criminal justice policy increasingly over the last several decades has been one that reflects the idea that we ought to decarcerate en masse. And so what I want to do with the rest of the talk is just talk a little bit about this agenda, which I think rests on three fundamental claims, which I'm going to sort of pick apart in turn. The first fundamental claim is the idea that the United States has a mass incarceration problem that we can be fairly characterized as a sort of draconian carceral state. The second claim is that that problem is driven by an inherently violent uh, system of policing, of over-policing, really. And the third claim is that both of those phenomena, the police violence problem and the mass incarceration problem, fall disproportionately on the shoulders of low-income minority communities, evidencing a systemic racism problem. So let's start with mass incarceration. Does the United States have a mass incarceration problem? After all, we have one of the largest incarcerated populations in the world. Right? It's often said that the U.S. is home to about 5% of the world's population, but about 25% of its prisoners. We're often unfavorably compared to Western European democracies like England, Wales, Germany, and France, who have significantly lower incarceration rates than the United States does. Now, implicit in how that problem is framed, mass incarceration, and implicit in the comparisons to other Western European democracies, is an argument that our incarceration rate ought to mirror those. Well, in order to do that, we would have to engage in mass decarceration. And so I think the best test of whether we have a mass incarceration problem is to ask whether we can engage in mass decarceration, i.e. release 40 to 70% of our prisoners, which is what we would need to do to actually have our incarceration rates match those of the UK, for example. Can we do that safely? And I think the answer is no. And one of the reasons for that is that, well, it turns out if you actually do the research, prison in the United States turns out to be a relatively rare, short-term sanction that is largely reserved for violent, repeat offenders who are extremely likely to reoffend if released. And so I just want to run through some data that actually established this. So the Department of Justice for a long time would track outcomes of felony arrests. Um, and one of the things that they looked at was felony convictions. And it turns out that at the state level, which is where most of the action happens, only 40% of state felony convictions actually result in a post-conviction term of imprisonment, meaning that more than half 
of offenders who are convicted of a state-level felony are either given time served or sentences of probation or complete diversion. So it's a relatively rare sanction relative to the other alternatives to incarceration that people often get. Now, I also said it's a relatively short-term sanction. When we talk about incarceration in the United States, we often hear these awful stories about these draconian sentences handed down in, in, in these cases involving relatively low-level criminal conduct, and we're told that this is representative of practices in the United States. But what if I told you that if you actually looked at time served, what you would find is that the median amount of time actually served in the United States is 16 months before someone is initially released. Doesn't sound like a lot of time to me, given the type of offenders that actually constitute our prison population. Seems incongruous with the narrative if you were just a casual observer of the debate. Even if you just looked at the average, which is a number that's driven by and large by the right tail of the distribution, it's only two and a half years, which again is not very long, especially when you consider the fact that the vast majority of people in state prisons today, which accounts for about nine in 10 prisoners in the United States, are there serving time primarily for a violent felony. More than 50% of people in state prisons are there primarily for a violent felony. Now, if you add weapons felonies in, you get close to two-thirds of the state prison population, which is a pretty big number. Now, notice I said primarily. The way that our prison statistics work is that you are categorized based on the offense with the highest sentence ceiling. So if you are, let's say, a drug dealer who was convicted of illegal drug possession but also had a firearm on you and you were also convicted of illegal firearm possession, depending on the amount of drugs, you might actually get a higher sentence for the drug offense than you would for the firearm offense. And so you are going to be categorized in our official prison statistics as a drug offender, even though you were also convicted of a weapons offense. And so when we, have to, when we look at these statistics, we have to take them with a bit of a grain of salt. And there's another reason for that. And that reason is that the vast majority of cases in the United States are not cases that go to trial where you have advocates on two sides of a courtroom banging the table and making arguments, they're resolved via plea bargain. About 95% of cases are resolved via, via plea bargain. You know, uh, the shows like Law and Order give us a warped sense of what justice actually looks like in the United States, but you know, it's a, it, it's a pretty mundane process of you know, brief negotiation where you know, uh, an offender is given a choice to plead down to either a lesser offense or to fewer offenses than he was actually initially charged with in exchange for not going to trial, which means that the official conviction records of people in prison often understate the severity of the criminal conduct that they actually engaged in, right? And, and, and that's really, really important to understand. The other thing is that not only are most people in prison there primarily for violence, even the people that aren't there primarily for violence often have violent criminal histories. And we know this because we have data on the extensiveness of the criminal histories of the typical people in prison in the United States. And if you look at just people being released from prison in a given year, and you look at their criminal histories, what you will find are individuals that have somewhere between 10 and 12 prior arrests and somewhere between five and six prior convictions. Now, how do you square that with a narrative that the United States systematically denies second chances? Right? Last month was second chance month in the United States. And again, the idea here is that our draconian system brings down the hammer at the very first offense, that people are not given another bite at the apple, but the data tell us otherwise. And with every single bite at the apple that we give to a repeat offender, what we are doing is essentially rolling the dice, but we're not rolling the dice with our own lives. We're rolling the dice with the lives of people who are not as fortunate as all of us in this room are. People who are stuck living in the enclaves 
like the west side of Chicago, like the north side of Philadelphia, like the southwestern district in Baltimore, where the homicide rates are mind-blowing. And if you look at Chicago, for example, as I did in, in my book, and you just look at 2019, I wanted to look at a year prior to the pandemic, I broke out the 10 most dangerous neighborhoods in that city. What I found was an area in the aggregate with a homicide rate in excess of 61 per 100,000. Now to contextualize that for you, in 2019, the national homicide rate was five per 100,000. And I compared those 10 most dangerous neighborhoods to the 28 safest neighborhoods in the city of Chicago, which by the way, had more than 250,000 additional residents and yet had 200 fewer murders. Their collective homicide rate was less than two per 100,000. And the 60 plus per 100,000 homicide rate for those 10 most dangerous neighborhoods didn't even come close to some of the most dangerous neighborhoods in that group, including West Garfield Park, which in 2019 posted a homicide rate of 131 per 100,000, which means that if you were a young man growing up in West Garfield Park, Chicago, the chances of you dying are higher than the chances of you going to college and graduating, dying violently. There are some parts of this country in which the risk to young men just living their lives, going to school, hanging out with their friends is more acute than the risk faced by frontline Marines in Iraq and Afghanistan. Now, if you just take a step back and think about the fear so many mothers had in 2001, two and three as they sent their young boys off to the Marines knowing that we were at the height of two really bad conflicts the fear that their sons wouldn't come home, which is a fear I think all of us could understand. Compare that, I want you to imagine living in a community in which you know that every time you send your young son off to school or out to go play basketball with his friends, that you are taking the same chance with that kid's life. That your son has the same chance of not coming home as a frontline Marine. That's not the America that I want to live in. Now, not only are most prisoners in the state system, again, which accounts for nine out of every 10 prisoners, violent, repeat offenders, they're also people who are extremely likely to reoffend if released. How do I know this? Well, one thing that the federal government does do fairly well is it tracks the recidivism statistics of people who are being released from state prison. And over a 10-year period, state prisoners will reoffend at a rate of 80 to 83%, meaning that less than 20% of them will desist from criminal activity. Over a 10-year period, more than 80% will be rearrested at least once. On average, they will be rearrested five times over that period. A significant chunk of them will be rearrested for violent crimes specifically. Now, again, this understates the severity of the reoffense problem. Why? For two reasons. One, the vast majority of criminal offenses, A, are not reported to police in the United States. This is something that people don't fully appreciate. Two, is even the offenses that are reported to police in the United States are not cleared at a very high rate. They don't result in an arrest most of the time. So the FBI, up until recently when it discarded the, the UCR, Uniform Crime Reports, used to report every year on the clearance rate for the eight index felonies that were tracked. These are the felonies that you know, um, basically reflect general crime trends in the United States. There are four violent ones and four property ones. So the four violent ones are murder and non-negligent um, homicide, uh, aggravated assault, robbery, and sexual assault or rape. For those four violent index felonies, the clearance rate has generally hovered over the last decade at around 48%, meaning that more than half of those offenses that are reported to police go unsolved and don't result in an arrest. For the property offenses, right, which includes burglary, grand larceny, grand theft, auto, and arson, the clearance rate has usually hovered at around 
Now, these are all crimes that I think the vast majority of Americans agree should be met with some term of incarceration, and yet the statistics tell us that it's very likely that you'll get away with it if you commit any one of those crimes. So when we see these recidivism statistics, five arrests over a 10-year period for the typical person released from a United States prison, what you're seeing is only a tiny subset of the criminal activity that those individuals are engaged in. And again, that problem is not an evenly distributed one. It is one that is disproportionately borne by the least advantaged communities in our country. Now, I want to just take a quick moment to, you know, give some color to the argument on the other side, because there is an argument on the other side. And I think two of the, the most compelling ones is that, you know, incarceration feeds a negative cycle by taking father figures and, you know, community leaders out of the home. And this is meant to sort of appeal to conservative audiences. They say, well, you care about families, right? You care about the integrity of families. You care about two-parent households, and yet you support policies that take fathers out of the home. Now, this argument relies on a yet unproven assumption, and that assumption is that the sort of person who might find themselves behind bars is actually a reliable source of both economic and emotional support in their home. Now, we do have a lot of research in the psychological field that tells us that generally, yeah, two parents are better than one. However, if one of those parents is antisocial in their disposition, the outcomes for the children of those families are actually worse than the outcomes of children who have an absent prosocial parent. So one parent is better than two if one of those two parents is antisocial in their disposition, which means that the next question we should ask is, are the typical people who end up in prison antisocial in their dispositions? And the data tell us yes. Now, in the general population of men in the United States, antisocial personality disorder, which is a psychological condition diagnosed, in, you know, diagnosed through the, the DSM-5, has a prevalence rate of about two to four percent for men. Right, which is actually pretty high, but you know, nowhere near what it is for prisoners. In prison settings, it ranges between 40 and 70%, depending on the facility that you're looking at. So what that means is that you actually have a huge population of people in prison who have diagnosable antisocial personality disorder. Well, what that tells you is that actually you might be doing the children of these individuals a favor by taking these individuals out of the home before they can do the kind of damage that is associated with the adverse childhood experiences and exposure to trauma that is often associated with people who have antisocial dispositions and in fact there's been some growing body of research on this where criminologists have actually been trying to assess the effect of incarceration on childhood outcomes i think expecting to find that taking these parents out of the home made these kids worse off but indeed, what they find is higher levels of educational attainment and lower levels of criminal involvement when you're looking at kids whose parents have been incarcerated versus kids who are similarly situated but whose parents have not been. And I think that's really important. The other argument that people make in favor of mass decarceration is the idea that prison and jail are criminogenic in and of themselves, that they cause people to come out so much worse off than they were when they went in that it actually pays not to put them away in the first place. Now, it's a really complicated argument, but I'm going to try and break it down for you. When you are in the social sciences trying to assess the effect of a given treatment on an outcome, right? in this case the treatment would be incarceration and the outcome would be post-release recidivism, right? you, ideally what you would want to do is uh, have a randomized control trial. But it would be incredibly unethical to do that in the context of the criminal justice system, right? We can't say, okay, we know you killed this guy, but we're going to let you free just to see what happens, right? Uh, you, you, you can't do that. Right? And, and unfortunately, you know, there really isn't very much randomness in how we make criminal justice decisions. Right? For 
for people who get sent to prison, there are usually very good reasons for why they get sent to prison. For people who are diverted, there are usually very good reasons for why they're diverted. So how do researchers actually suss this out? What they do is they look at a subpopulation of offenders that are called on the margins of incarceration, right? So you look at a big data set of, in a given jurisdiction, you try and figure out the combination of offense and criminal history for which you know, the, the population of offenders, whether they get incarcerated, will come down to the severity or leniency of the judge that their case is randomly assigned to, right? So, you know, people whose criminal history and conduct is not so serious that incarceration is a foregone conclusion if they're convicted, but people whose, you know, criminal conduct and criminal history is not so low level that it's a foregone conclusion that they'll be diverted if they're convicted. And then you look at the judges in that jurisdiction and you categorize them on a, on a spectrum of leniency to severity and you take out everyone in the middle and you only look at the judges on the tail ends of the distribution and the cases are randomly assigned to judges. And what those studies find is for the people who are on the margins of incarceration, sometimes, though not always, they do come out significantly worse off than when they went in. Now the problem is, is that the decarceration crowd has taken this body of research, which is still growing and is hardly unanimous in terms of outcomes, and they have grafted it on to a population of offenders that it doesn't actually apply to. Why? Because the risk proposition for the typical median prisoner in the United States is very different than the risk proposition for someone who is on the margins of incarceration. The typical person in prison is someone who has a much more extensive criminal history, as I already noted, and who is much more of a violence risk. Right? And so we can't actually draw very, very much from that research. And that's exactly what the authors of the meta-analyses have said. And so unfortunately, that, that often gets ignored. I want to take a, just a, a couple of minutes now to talk about the second fundamental claim upon which the reform movement rests. And that is this idea that the United States has a significant police violence problem. Right? The idea is, is that you know, we should all be very, very troubled, and we should actually, by these you know, terrible cases like what happened to George Floyd or Tyree Nichols uh, in Memphis. But they go a step further and they say that those kinds of events actually characterize policing as an institution, and they are incorrect. The data say that they are incorrect. If you look at deadly use of force by police, it is incredibly rare, statistically speaking. Right? Yes, a thousand people a year are killed by police. And that sounds like a lot in a country where you only, you know, in a place where you only have 365 days in a year. It's more than one person a day, right? Um, I actually did uh, an analysis of 2018 uh, police shooting data. And uh, based on uh, both data sets on 50 largest cities, as well as, you know, uh, data sets like the Washington Post police shooting database, estimated that in 2018, police officers fired their weapons purposefully some 3,000 times. Sounds like a lot, it's more than eight shootings a day. But when you contextualize that number in the context of the overall volume of police activity, it actually starts to look a bit different. Well, in 2018, we had almost 700,000 police officers operating in the United States in full-time uniform roles. They had some 75 million public contacts with individuals ranging from traffic stops to arrests to stops and frisks. They made 10.3 million arrests that year. So if you just use the denominator of arrests, right, it turns out that police use deadly force in just 0.03% of all arrests. Now, you don't get that if you were just a casual observer of the debate, reading the pages of you know, the Washington Post and the New York Times, the opinion pages anyway. That's not how the debate is characterized. Right? Now, and the case for a police violence problem doesn't get stronger when you look at non-deadly force either. 
right? So in 2021, the NYPD fielded some 6 million calls for service. They made over 160,000 arrests. They used force of any kind whatsoever in just 3.5% of those arrests. And the vast majority of the instances in which they used force were level one uses of force, which simply means putting your hands on somebody to take them down. So no injury, nothing. There was another study that I, I talk about in the book that looks at um, uh, a two-year data set uh, across three police departments, one in Louisiana, one in Arizona, and one in North Carolina. That data set includes over a million calls for service, which resulted in 114,000 criminal arrests. And that entire data set, there was just one fatal police shooting. And police use force of any kind in just one out of every 128 of those arrests, meaning that they use force less than 1% of the time. So irrespective of where you are in that range of less than 1% to 3.5%, force is not a particularly common outcome in an arrest. And that's something that really gets lost. Moreover, it's been moving in the right direction, which is not something that's at all reflected in the rhetoric of police reformers. Right? If you look at the NYPD, for example, in 1971, they shot and wounded um, like some 225 people. Now they fire their weapons at all maybe two dozen times in a year. That's an incredible amount of progress that is not at all reflected in the chance of hands up, don't shoot, which were heard all throughout New York City in 2020. Now, again, both the police violence uh, allegation and the mass incarceration allegation are said to fall disproportionately on low-income minority communities, and it is true. If you look at the proportion of the population that is constituted by African Americans in particular, they are overrepresented among people arrested and subject to police uses of force and incarcerated in the United States. But using population as a benchmark is the wrong way to look at this disparity, number one. And in fact, when you actually control for the relevant factors that inform these decisions, such as the spatial concentration of crime geographically, a lot of those disparities start to shrink, in some cases even to nothing. Right? Roland Fryer, my colleague at the Manhattan Institute, took a lot of flack for doing a study that actually found no racial disparities in deadly police uses of force. Now, he did find racial disparities in non-deadly uses of force, but those racial disparities shrunk significantly from the top-line disparities that just looked at um, the proportion of the population. Right? When you actually control for relevant factors when you're looking at something like incarceration, so you control for criminal history, the severity of the crime committed, the jurisdiction in which the sentence was handed down, it turns out that the claim that black defendants are sentenced more harshly than white defendants is not true. At least not in any systematic way. Right? But to me, the biggest problem with the systemic racism critique within the context of the criminal justice debate is that it only looks at one side of the ledger. Now, we have made a lot of progress on crime in recent history. Again, in my home city of New York, in 1990, we had 2,262 murders that year. It's a lot of murders, especially when you consider the fact that in 2017, we had 292 murders. It's a 90% decline. It's something that we saw across the country. Between 1990 and 2014, the homicide rate in the US declined some 50 plus percent. Right, massive, massive improvement in public safety. Well, we can actually look at who benefited from that. And I got something to tell you. It wasn't white men, it wasn't white women. It was almost disproportionately, almost entirely black men. So there's a, a researcher at Princeton uh, called Patrick Sharkey, a guy who, with whom I disagree on policy um, in, in almost every way. Um, 
But he's done some really interesting analyses. And one of his analyses was a look at the decline in um, homicides between 1990 and 2014. And what he found was that that decline in homicides added a full year of life expectancy to the average black man's life in this country. But it only added 0.14 years to the average white man's life in this country. Now, the public health equivalent of that, according to Sharkey, would be to eliminate obesity altogether. So you're talking about a massive, massive improvement from a public health standpoint that was enjoyed almost entirely by 7% of the population. Now, I think this is important because, again, when you reconsider the concentration of crime demographically, it becomes very clear who stands to benefit from crime reductions. Now, the problem with the systemic racism critique is it only looks at enforcement outcomes as if those are the only outputs of the criminal justice system, of policing. Well, we have a literature on policing and on criminal justice. And if you look at just incarceration, right, the low end estimate for the role that incarceration played in the crime decline of the 1990s was that it was responsible for about 25% of the decline in homicides. That's William Spellman's work. Right, you have Stephen Levitt on the high end who says it was about 45% of the homicide decline over the course of the 1990s. Even if it's somewhere in the middle, incarceration is responsible for a big chunk of that decline. We also have a really large and robust body of literature on the effect of policing on crime. And every single one of the high quality randomized control studies that are done looking at either the effect of additional spending on police or additional police hires or expanding police presence in certain areas, they all find consistently significant declines in crime. They also find that the effects of those crime declines are more pronounced in low-income minority communities. So I want to leave you all with a rhetorical question, which is when you consider the systemic racism critique, ask yourself, why on earth would an institution allegedly designed and operated for the specific oppression of low-income minority communities so disproportionately benefit those communities when the system achieves its stated ends? Every time you talk to a police chief, a law and order prosecutor, a corrections official, you ask them, what is it that you want to achieve in your career? How do you define success? They say, well, we want to control crime. We want to get it down. Well, we know who the victims are. So if you maintain the posture that what you're trying to do is reduce crime, you have to accept that what they're doing is pursuing the interests of precisely the communities that reformers say that they are antagonizing. And that's wrong. And we need to stop. And so I'll leave it there. Thank you so much.